One of the things we try to live by here is when God does something great, we want to give glory to God and gratitude to the people who he used to, uh, to do whatever it was that he did. And so um, as we say uh, hello to other Western North Carolina campuses, because what's happened is the Wake Weekend has been actually uh, at, at all campuses uh, all weekend long. Uh, so there are going to be some naps going on uh, for sure before the Super Bowl this afternoon. But I want to make sure that all the campuses hear this, but just phenomenal job by the student leadership team. Uh, volunteers, thank you very, very much. I saw a bunch of adults there last night. Thank you. Let's go ahead and give them a big thank you round of applause. All right. All right. Great, great job. It's, uh, it's going to be a fun weekend all uh, weekend long. All right, here's where we've been. We've been in a series called Reset the Table. And uh, here's basically where we are. Reset is the idea, the hope of the fact that, you know what, things can be different. Uh, we can start fresh. We can have a, a new beginning. And the table is a metaphor for our close relationships, particularly our family relationships, but also those that are close to us, maybe some super close friends, uh, extended family. And so what we've been doing over the last four weeks has been hitting certain areas. And so the first week we talked about how do you kind of clean off the rubble? And we talked about how do you get grace into your home and how do you give family, basically family forgiveness. The second week, we really talked and honed in on the marriage relationship, all right? The marriage relationship. And we said it is a covenant relationship. It's not a contract relationship, all right? It's covenant. It's not contract, all right? And so uh, we spent some time on that. Then we talked about how do you actually have intense disagreements? How do you fight fair in the family, all right? How do you do that? And then last week, we talked actually about how do we reset family discipleship in our homes? That is, is particularly as parents, if you're a parent or a grandparent, how do you you do that uh, in your home, whether they're two years old or whether they're 40 years old, how do you disciple? And so we're going to finish up next week with something that uh, I've probably been asked that question, this question uh, as much as any family question ever. Uh, we have had that experience personally, and so we are going to deal with that next week. So today, uh, what we're going to actually look at is something that might seem a bit odd, and I want you to go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 22, uh, because that's where we're going to be. And uh, I say all that to say the family relationship close relationships, they are super, 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 super important, super important, vital. We talk so much about, you know what, the, the gospel affects us vertically when we embrace Christ as Savior. When we repent and embrace Christ, a vertical dynamic changes. Your relationship with God changes. But then what happens is when that happens and life change begins, it then flows out horizontally to the people that are closest to you and then extends even further than that. But you might get the idea that, you know what, uh, when you look at some of the surveys, even Christian people sometimes get the order mixed up. And we take good things, we take even great things like family, like relationships, like the hope of a home, those kind of things, and we take a great thing and we make it an ultimate thing. And when we do that, it eventually collapses on itself because it was never made to bear that kind of weight. Uh, I will go back and much to my... A chagrin, I will go ahead and have to use a Tom Brady illustration uh, today. So just got to gotta go there. Gotta, don't, really, you're going to boo in church? Really? Going to boo in church? Awesome. Awesome. So here's, here's a, a kind of fairly well-known story. It actually happened several years ago. He was doing an interview with 60 Minutes, and the guy was interviewing him all the time. And he was asking about all these different things and accomplishments he's had. And again, if you're not a, if you're not a football fan, Tom Brady, uh, obviously quarterback of the New England Patriots, superstar, a good-looking guy. He's got a supermodel for a wife. At the time of this interview, he'd won three Super Bowls. Uh, tonight, I believe he's going for his sixth Super Bowl. He's got all this money. He signed a 
quadrillion dollar contract. He's got all this stuff, but then he began to press back to the interviewers. The interview was going over all these accomplishments. Here's what he said. He looks at the interviewer, a guy named Steve Croft, and he says, why do I have, at this point he had three, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is all about. I reached my goals, my dream, my life. He says, me? When I think about it, I think it's got, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, and then he says, and it, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. And then the interview's kind of, the interviewer's perplexed a little bit, and he's like, well, what, what is, quote, the answer? What could it possibly be? And Brady replied, what's the answer? I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me I'm still trying to find out. Now, I don't know if Tom Brady's actually ever heard of C.S. Lewis or not. But he's basically was saying the same thing C.S. Lewis said in one of his books when he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, it may be that we were made for an entirely different world. And so what we're going to talk about for a few minutes in one of the most bizarre, crazy, difficult to understand passages in all the Bible. But what you're going to see is this is like a top button kind of truth. When I say top button, what it's going to say, what it's going to actually talk about is like if you have a button shirt and you start with the wrong button, whether it be from the bottom of the top or top of the button, if you start wrong, then all the whole thing is messed up. And that's what he's going to talk about today. So Genesis 22 is one of those stories you might or might not, if you grew up in church, it might have been kind of one of those neat stories. It is a harrowing story, dangerous story. And it's in, here's the idea. We are intended to love. I want us to love our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents, our spouses wholeheartedly, but when we love them ultimately, we actually put them in danger and they are what one, one guy called disordered loves, disordered loves. So Genesis 22 is kind of where we're going to be. And here's, here's the main thought. I'm going to probably say it three or four times. And here, here's the whole thought of the whole passage of the whole rest of the time we're together in God's word is we will love other people best we love other people best, whether it, be, whether it be parent, whether it be ex, whether it be kids, whether it be parents. We love other people best when we love God the most. We're better husbands, we're better wives, we're better kids. We're all, we do that when we love God first and most and best. And so here we are, Genesis 22. Let's kind of walk through this. Uh, I'm going to walk through part of it. We're going to camp out about why these things collapse on themselves and then how do we make that right. All right, here we are, Genesis 22, verse 1. Uh, after these things. Now, after these things, I highlighted that. Let me repeat it again because we're kind of new to using the little Jesus iPad up here. And what the, after these things, that's highlighted, not because those words are any more important. In other words, is to draw your attention to, okay, there's some things we're going to talk about referring to that part of the verse. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Here I am is not like just president accounted for. Here I am is actually, you know what? I'm here. What do you want to tell me? I am surrendering. You tell me the assignment and I will do uh, the duty. So real quick thing about Abraham. Some of you are new to church. Some of you aren't. Abraham, Jesus is the central figure of the Bible, but one of the 
bit players, and one of the main bit players is a guy named Abraham. Abraham was called in Genesis chapter 12, and he was called, and, he, and God promised him, I am going to make a nation out of you, ended up being the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, nation of Israel, I am going to make a people from you, I'm going to make a people from you. And so Abraham's already kind of old, but he's like, listen, I'm going to give you an offspring. I'm going to give you some children. Doesn't have any children at this point. I'm going to bless all the nations in the earth through you and your offspring. His wife, Sarah, she has been unable to conceive. The years turned into more years, more years turned into decades. They're praying for, they're longing for, they're crying over. They don't have a kid. They don't have a child. And then finally, when they are super senior adults, I'm talking about super senior adults, she has a baby boy. His name is Isaac. They name him Isaac. Isaac means laughter. <laughs> means laughter. Now, there's a bunch of different reasons why they might have called him laughter. They didn't believe God at first, particularly Sarah. And not only after that, they said, like, what joy they brought into their home. It's like, we finally have that baby boy that we've hoped for, prayed for, cried over. Look how good God is. And so it's joyful, it is fulfilling. But you get to verse one in this passage, and Isaac at this point is a teenager. Isaac is somewhere around the age of 15. And God says, Abraham, Abraham. And he's like, here am I, here am I. And this is where the test begins. And he said... And th- Theologians say that up until this point in the whole story of Abraham, it has been like fast, 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 fast. And now theologians say the whole language slows down. It's been going real quick. You go here, you go there, you protect this. And now it's like slows down. And here's where it slows down. And you can imagine why. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And he slows down, They're like, this is, this is your only son. This is the son you love. This is the one you waited for. This is the promised heir whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, it's the first time the word love is actually used in the Bible. First time the word love is used in the Bible and the context is a loved son being offered as a sacrifice. Now, a couple of things, because some of you are like, what? What? why would God ask that? Now listen, nowhere in scripture does God tell his people to do that. They actually were going into a pagan land that practiced that, the Canaanites practiced that. You don't see that. You actually see God forbid this in books like Deuteronomy. But you can see at the start, he says, this is a test. This is a test, all right? Abraham just doesn't know it is a test yet. But just remember, this child represents everything to Abraham. This was the child of promise. This is what they left everything for. All their hopes, all their dreams, all their affections. On top of that, all their security. Back in those days and times, your security was based on the kids you had. They would protect you. They would provide for you when you got old. They would carry on the family legacy. All that was wrapped up into their son. And now he's an old man. And this is all Abraham really loves and lives for in the world anymore. I mean, Abraham is old and Abraham is rich. And so more than likely what he spent his days doing, he wasn't going to the factory. He wasn't going somewhere else. He sat there and he could watch and play with his, with his son all day long. There he was swinging, and there he was being learning how to ride a bike. There he was learning how to drive a chariot. Here he is on the rope swing, all that stuff. They would sit there and watch him go to sleep at night. That's our baby. That's the promise. God is so very, very good. And then God comes on the scene and says, I want you to offer him up. And it's like, well, 
So verse three and four. So Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering, and he arose, and he went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, it's about a 50-mile journey, which would be about three days, particularly if you had a bunch of stuff and stuff on the donkey. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Go a little bit further. Go to... uh, yeah, verse five. Then Abraham said to his young men, don't, miss, don't miss, miss this. He says to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy. Some of your translations say we, but I and the boy, me and Isaac, we will go over there and we'll worship and we'll come again to you. What you see already is he does not know how. Abraham has no idea how this is going to work, but he has confidence in some way, somehow or another, God is going to provide a way where both he and Isaac come back. He understood, you know what? God's promised some stuff. He's never broken a promise and he's not going to start now. Verse six, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. He took He took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? I just like to be that dad. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went, it says both of, both of them both of them together. I always thought, I was like, what is he talking about? What's he thinking about for three days? You kind of get maybe a glimpse in here. For three days, he had a three-day journey, not a lot of chatter going on, but he's thinking, okay, God's made some promises. God's made some promises. And then you see up in verse eight, God will provide. Go to verse nine. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac. Now keep in mind, Isaac is a strapping teenager at this point. He We'll come back to that. Bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, we're going to go to these last couple of verses in just a second. But Isaac, again, he's around 15. At 15, with a senior, senior adult dad, he could have at least run away from him or at most overpowered him. I remember when I was like 41 and I had the wrestling match with one of my sons when they had gotten to that kind of that age where they were like pretty strapping young fellas. And I remember all of a sudden what used to be a walk in the park was everything I had, every dirty dad trick I knew to win that wrestling match, I had to break out of the box because I'm like, man, this guy is strong. So Abraham was like super senior adult and I'm beginning to think, how? Ah, why would Isaac, why would he allow himself to get up there? And the only thing I can think of is crawling up on that altar, Isaac trusted God and he trusted his dad. And I thought the only way, the only way that Isaac would do this is if he inherited trust in God from his dad. The only way he would have done that, he had heard his dad talk about God. He had saw his dad walk with God. He'd seen his dad sacrifice for God. And then when it came time, he's like, you know what? That's my dad. I can trust him and I can trust his God. Question real quick and we'll keep with the story. Dads, let me just say this to you. Dads and granddads, but dads in particular. Statistics say that if the father does not go to church, 
the father drops them off, drops them off at church, then there's a one in 50 chance that that daughter or that son will be a worshiper of Jesus. One in 50 if dad drops them off or is not at all involved. That goes to like two thirds to three quarters if dad comes to church and worships Jesus with their child. And so the idea is not that moms are not important. Moms are incredibly important, but just statistically, there's something about a dad practicing what he preaches, doing what he's trying to do, showing affection, confessing when he's wrong, all those things that somehow makes an amazing difference. And then we'll go through these two and then we'll kind of break it down a little bit. But he's about to do that. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And here's the, here's the verse from him. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know. Now again, is God trying to get information? No, God God does not test us. God does not do things so that he can have information. He's trying to push out the faith and say, okay, who is on the top shelf of your life, Abraham? For now I know that you fear God, that you reverence God, that you respect God, that you love God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. All right, crazy story. We've got two more verses in it, but crazy story. You're like, what is this incident all about? I mean, that is one of the, that's one of the craziest stories and it makes me frightened. I mean, like, what, what is going, this, we got to get out of this church, Ethel, because this place is nuts. Oh, what is the story about? What is the story about? I think what you see, one of them is obvious and one of them is not so obvious to Abraham. One of them you can tell is obvious to Abraham. It's obvious to him. One of them is not as obvious that actually ought to be more obvious to us now. But one of them is this, is that relationships and family and marriage and all those things, they are good things. They are actually great things. They are awesome gifts from God and they are good loves. But listen, the good things that can become God things eventually just collapse on themselves. God gives us a child. He gives us some beautiful gift and says, this is something I want you to have. I made it just, I made it just for you, but can you love it without worshiping it? Can you keep it on the proper shelf? Can you love the gift in such a way that it makes you love the giver all the more? I mean, again, Abraham is wealthy, yet God didn't test him in his wealth. He was successful. He didn't test him in his success. He was married. He didn't test him in his married. Those weren't disordered loves. If anything pulled his love away from the Lord, it was that promised son that he wanted for so long, so bad, and now it consumed him. And it pulled him away from the Lord, which by the way, those of you that are dating somebody or maybe you're getting really serious, I would say that is like one of the premier questions you've got to ask about, hey, we're getting serious. He might pop the question. You marry somebody, you marry somebody that makes you closer to the Lord, that pulls you closer to the Lord. If you've got somebody that every time you're with him, every time you're with her, you are further from the Lord, you run away. But I can tell you right now, I distinctly remember, and when Lori and I were dating, I was like, man, not only is she like a gospel fox, and not only is she fine, but man, anytime I'm with her, she challenges me just by her behavior and her demeanor and all of those challenges me to be a better man and love Jesus more. It's like, man, I'm going to ring that. That is awesome. That's who I want for the rest of my life. So let's, uh, if you get that out of order, here's some things that happen. I mean, there's about 10, but let me give you three. Here's what happens when we have disordered loves. When you put the gift above the giver, when you put something that is good and make it ultimate, there's some things that begin to happen. I'm going to try to hit a wide panoply of people here, but one of them is this, is there's unrealistic expectation on what they are actually going to bring. I mean, you get the picture that Isaac had become, again, his main source of identity and security and joy. 
That's why we spent a bunch of time a few weeks ago, you know, what about, about marriage? If marriage is that thing, for example, if marriage is that thing, then you believe the good life begins only when you meet that one person. I mean, okay, uh, example, when, when Harry met Sally, I'm not trying to check my man card now, but when Harry met Sally is a, you're like, I've never seen that movie. Just insert any, any romantic movie, okay? Any romantic movie. But in this one, Harry comes to Sally and says, quote, when you realize that you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. I mean, that, what, what is that? Let me say it again. When you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. As I said, you hadn't seen it, then look at any other romantic movie ever made. Here's the message. The message is get this and you'll be happy. But the flip side is you miss this and you're a loser and your life is over. But you gotta get this, you gotta get this. You gotta get this romantic love. Please hear me on this, and we've, we've kind of gone over some of this, but that's why we, you got to dispel the whole right person myth a few weeks ago. i got to find my soulmate. She's out there somewhere. She might be in Minnesota or might have to go to Chicago where it's 50 below, but my soulmate is out there. Please hear me. Ladies, 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 single ladies, please. You're never going to, or even married ladies, you're never going to have a man or find a man who completes you. No matter how many Harlequin romance novels that there are, and I think there's like six that are sold in our country every single second. No matter how many of those you read, there is nobody who is man enough to fulfill and to fix what is broken in you. That's why the Bible is about you need a savior before you need a soulmate, all right? That guy out there is not going to complete you, okay? Men, the same thing. We usually kind of talk about the ladies. Oh, ladies, you got, but men are the same way. If I can just conquer Mrs. Wright and then I'll just conquer these other things, but I'll conquer Mrs. Wright. There is no woman, there is no woman out there who is gonna fix all this stuff. You're like, I'm lonely, I'm insecure, I need somebody to help me. Listen, lonely, insecure, single people when they get married are lonely, insecure, married people, all right? You think, well, it's just gonna be solved in marriage. No, it's not. Marriage just presses all that stuff out. And by the way, churches don't help with this anymore because we almost talk about single people like their whole life is just led up to finding that perfect, you know, be a better person and God will send you that purse. Well, well, you know, Apostle Paul was single. Jesus Christ was single, okay? So it's not like the ultimate, your spiritual maturity is not dependent on whether or not you find a spouse. And you're like, well, well my family, Pew Research says that about half of the Christians put their family as the number one thing they get their identity and security and motivation for living for. Really? Really? Is that the way it's supposed to be? White picket fence and yes, sir, and no, sir. Those, all those things are, all those things are awesome. But if you put those things on the top shelf and God on the back shelf, stuff starts to break down. It breaks down in a lot of ways. Here's one I put down. It's like, here's what I see when people are like, you know what? Uh, if... I'm not happy in my marriage and somebody thinks, but then they go see somebody in connect group and their marriage is happy. And like, you know what? He's happy. I'm not happy. It must be my wife's fault. I must be married to the wrong person. And then he begins to compare his wife to other wives and other women. And he always does it out of frustration. The only problem is twofold. He always sees the other women in these social situations when they are at their best. And then he goes home and he sees his wife and she's not at her best. That's the first thing. And number two, you can't remove you from the whole paradigm. They've got, they haven't seen you. They've seen you at your best. 
They hadn't seen with you had old stinky socks. They hadn't seen you with all that nasty habits you have. And that's your wife. She's seen you and knows you and she's still with you. Man, it's like, and all the men said, oh me, what is he? So I'm just, all right, so here, let's move on. Unrealistic expectation. Here's another one. Unreasonable action. Unreasonable action. I mean, ironically, uh, this is, I thought about this all week. When we idolize something, when we put it on the top shelf, it ultimately keeps us from actually enjoying it. Idolizing something ultimately keeps you from being able to enjoy it. You obsess over it and you can't enjoy it. Why? Because you depend on it. It's like a life preserver. I've got to have this to save me. This completes me. This makes me the person. I'm just all about my kids, etc. That's who I am. You depend on family. You become controlling. You go from sweet, loving mother to dominating, obsessive, controlling helicopter mother. That's what you become. Why? Because my kids are everything to me. Kind of walk down here. Uh, there's some parents that if, uh, and you're a Christian, you, 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 you know the Lord, but one of your biggest nightmares is if God ever called your, your kid to overseas missions. You're like, I, 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 I'm okay if they love Jesus. I just don't want them to go to Uganda. I'm okay. I just don't want them to go. Because my idea of my family is my grandkids growing up within a stone's throw of my house. Nothing wrong with wanting that. But when you want that more than you want God's will for their life, that has become an idol. Let me just kind of get down to where we really are. There's a lot of girls and uh, young ladies, you're dating a non-Christian and you aren't doing it because you want to tie yourself to a non-Christian guy and have that guy raise your kids. I mean, listen, that's not it. They simply cannot stand, you cannot stand the idea of being alone. And so if you have to circumvent God's will to get a man, so be it. Let me just go ahead and get in trouble even further. There's the same with a lot of ladies right now and you're living in immorality. You're living in immorality with your boyfriend and you're not doing it because you, I can't keep my hands off of him. He is like so sexy. That's not the reason. It's because they need the God of affection and love. And if that is a means to an end, so be it. And I'm saying you've made something that could be good and you've made it into a God and you put it on the top shelf. And that is the worst thing that you can possibly do for a relationship. All right, one more thing. We have this picture of an ideal family. There's some folks that won't even consider, you won't even pray about foster care or adoption. You won't even think about it. You won't even pray about it. Why? Because a foster kid would mess up your picture of an ideal family. That's a, that's a God to you. And here's what will eventually happen. What eventually will happen is this It'll disappoint, just like any idol will. It'll disappoint. When we look to someone other than God to complete us, give us identity, satisfy us, give us significance, it disappoints us and it disappoints us every time. I'll give you one last C.S. Lewis quote. Listen to this one. He said this, quote, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them, it only came through them, and that came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, and if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. It's like, what? What he's saying is, those are good they're good gifts. They're good gifts. But when the good gifts get put on the top shelf, everything gets out of order. 
and eventually just disappoints. Why? Because they were not made to stand up to the kind of pressure and weight that we put on there. Now, real quickly, uh, let me just give you this. I don't know how to put it any better than Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says that when you and I face the inevitable disappointment of disordered loves, I call it disordered loves, but it's idols, you have one or four one of four reactions. I probably should have put these down on uh, slides. When this happens, we'll do one of four things. One of them will blame the idol. We'll blame the idol. Blame the idol. The uh, first American idol, by the way, uh, Kelly Clarkson, the original American idol, after she made it big, she got in this romantic relationship. Of course, it fell apart. In one of her songs, she described it saying, quote, I fell so hard because of you. I'm ashamed of my life because it's empty. I mean, you write that kind of song you would think that the next chapter and maybe in her life was like, you know, a different life focus or maybe even looking into the Lord or anything like that, but it wasn't. The very next chapter was what? It was another guy thinking, you know what? That guy was wrong and so this guy will be right and he will fulfill all the dreams that I actually have. And again, here's, I've, I've, this is almost a quote, but I've heard it so many times, it's a paraphrase. We started out well in our marriage, but our marriage fell apart because she wasn't the right person. I was young and stupid then, but I'm older and wiser now. I know that there is a soulmate out there for me somewhere that will fulfill all my needs and make my life complete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she's right over by the unicorn. That's where, that's where she is. She's right over by there. He's over there by Bigfoot. That's where he is. Of course that's going to happen. It's not going to happen. That is an idol is what that is. And it eventually, it eventually disappoints. So what do we do? We just, we just blame the idol or we blame ourselves. Keller says, we just blame ourselves. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do better. I'm going to be a better person. I've got six steps to better me and all these kind of things. And eventually we just get frustrated, maybe even uh, give up. Or what we do is we blame the world. You just give up on being happy and you become a mean, cynical old person who mocks all the naive young people who have these dreams or you, or you just get numb. You just get numb and you're medicated or you, you, you medicate it through alcohol or drugs or some hobby or something like that. Or you do what was the quote, and that is you realize you were created for another world. All right, you're like, nobody thinks like that. I was thinking, it's like, well, nobody thinks like that. I don't think any Christ follower today at church would go, you know what? I am cognitively thinking I'm going to put God in the back seat, and I'm going to put this person or this relationship or even this awesome family or this dream of an awesome, I'm going to put that on the top shelf. I don't think anybody cognitively puts that in their mind like, this is what I'm doing. But what happens is we act that way. And I was going to give you a test, kind of like Abraham had a test there. And I was like, hey, give you, but I want to, jo- let me just ask you a few questions. You don't need to answer it. But uh, if you look back to what's the, what's the guy, uh, you might be a redneck if, you know, Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck if, and he lists all these characteristics. I would say you might have some idolatry that you need to repent of if, and I just, I just jotted three or four things down. All right. Um, this first one is going to be awesome because I just can't wait for this response. All right. Uh, this is it. True or false? Our family misses biblical community over half the time due to extracurricular activities. Our family misses biblical community. And it's pretty generous over half the time. I mean, you don't know how awesome a volleyball player Sally is. Sally is awesome. She got, 
She got picked for select team. We're thrilled for Sally. Well, man, old Bobo, he is like the most awesome softball player, baseball player. He is now, he gets to go on a select team to Brevard. I mean, it's awesome. And it's like, that's what happened. So let's just kind of put it all on the table. Nothing wrong with those things. I'm not that kind of preacher. It's like, oh, forget sports. And if you ever miss, you know, you're going to hell. Not that at all. I'm just saying priority-wise, priority-wise, biblical community. At some point, Junior is not going to be in your home anymore. She's going to be 18 and gone. You have to answer the question, all right? If they looked at us, if they looked at our family, if they looked at our calendar, if they looked at our checkbook, God forbid, if they looked at that, would they be able to say, you know what? We're about Jesus. That's what we're about. That's our first priority. That's the top shelf. The other stuff, while good, it's second, third, and fourth shelf. So you just got to ask the question. Here's another one. Um, I'm in a relationship that dishonors God. I am in a relationship right now that dishonors God. I'm dating a guy. He doesn't, he went to, he's actually at church with me right now. So I wish you wouldn't press so hard into this because he's never going to come back. I'm saying drop the guy before you leave church today. I'm just saying that. All right. If you don't do that, here it is. But I'm in a relationship. I'm in a relationship that dishonors God. You, you can only ask the question. Like, I don't want to break up with him because what if, what, what if God doesn't send somebody else? That all comes down to, it's like what Abraham, Abraham just like, I don't even know how God's going to figure this out. I don't know how he's going to make this work, but God's going to provide. At some point, that's the decision you got to make. Is God a good God who will provide or is he not? That's, that's the question. Are you in a relationship that dishonors God right now? Let me give you a couple more. Um, here's one that I thought, uh, actually, I can only read my writing on one. So here, here's the last one. You only got three. Um, because we're all going to make sacrifices for people, and you should. All right, if you're a if you're a spouse, not particularly. I mean, not particularly. I mean, I know some wives that can just beat a lot of people up. I'm just saying this, but if you're a spouse and somebody threatens your spouse, I mean, listen, I don't know of any, and again, I'm not, it's not meant to be misogynistic, but I know of no husband in here that would not sacrifice for his wife, even if that meant getting your tail kicked, you would at least give it 100% effort. It's like, nobody treats my wife this way. Agreed? Agreed? All right. Agreed. All right. I think any parent in here, any parent in here, if somebody was going to harm your children, you would go to the mat to protect them. I mean, you would go, you would go down, you would sacrifice your life. I don't think there's hardly any parent that wouldn't say, I would lay down my life for my little daughter or my, I don't think there's anybody in here that wouldn't say they would do that if that was what was needed. But just a question, just to ponder a little bit is just ask the question is, do you make sacrifices more for people than you do for Jesus Christ? Do you make more sacrifices for people than you do to follow Jesus. You're like, well, Jesus doesn't ask me for much. Actually, Jesus does. Jesus actually said, if you do not hate your mother and your father and your sister and brother uh, more, if you don't hate them compared to the way you love me, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. Some of you are getting upset about the whole soccer thing I mentioned a few minutes ago. And you're like, chapter and verse me. I'll chapter and verse you, okay? Why don't you look at Mark chapter 3 from about verse 31 to 35 when he was comparing both a biblical family and his biological family, both of them awesome, but what he said is he said, hey, that, that's, there's, there's my family. And so which one is it? That's just a little diagnostic. So here's what we got to do. We got to reorder it a little bit. And here's, here's the last two verses. So Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and he said, behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket 
which is, that's actually a cool picture. That's like, you know, the whole thing about an unblemished lamb is like God got the ram caught in a thicket in such a way that it didn't mess up his body. I mean, how awesome is that? It's like he got caught by his horns so his body didn't get messed up. Behold was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead in place of his son. And then last verse. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be, it shall be provided. So, uh, and by the way, what you name something in Hebrew literature is super significant. And this summarized, this is what happened here. And if you'd have just been reading the story, you probably would have said, uh, you'd have named that place something else. You would have said, I would have said, this is the place that Abraham obeyed. Abraham obeyed. That's the name of this place. Abraham obeyed. Or, or Isaac was almost killed. I mean, that's what you almost would say. That's not what he named it. Because it's not about Abraham's willpower. It's about God's provision. And so it says, I will name this place God provides. The Lord will provide. And by the way, centuries later, centuries later in the same mountains, another quote, one and only son, a loved son would walk up a mountain, willingly offer himself as the sin substitute for you and for me. And he wouldn't have somebody else come in his place. He would die in your place. All right. Theologians say that these same mountains, these same mountains that Abraham was in, where this whole Mount Moriah was, the same place, very similar place to where Mount Calvary was. So here's what I would say is, uh, in other words, on this very mountain where Jesus would die, this drama hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even came was picturing it. And so I wrote down a couple of things, and I want to lead you in kind of a, a prayer, I think, to how to replace it. Just jot it down. His love is more faithful than any kind of romance. His approval is better His approval through Christ is greater than any attaboy, any pat on the back that you will get. His future is more secure than family. The arms that you're searching for are his arms. His provision is more fulfilling than you can imagine. He was your substitute to pay God's justice. Keller puts it this way. He says, Jesus is the only God whom when you obtain him will satisfy you. And when you fail him, he will forgive you. God, why didn't I think of that? That is like such a good statement. It's like, man, I got to think up a better thought than that. Listen to it again. Jesus is the only God whom when you obtain him will satisfy you. And when you fail him, he will forgive you. So let me put it down here. The same, let me, let me end with where I started. We love others best when we love God first and most. Husband, you are the best thing you can have your, give your family today is a man who loves Jesus first. Wives, the same thing. Students, the same thing. You're like, I'm praying for my parents. I'm praying for my parents. My parents are here today and I'm praying for them and I'm praying for them. The best thing you can do for your family and your loved ones is say, you know what? The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to love Jesus first. And that's the best thing I can do to love them. And so uh, here's a prayer I kind of put together. I want us to, I want to explain and then we're going to try to embrace it. And then that's, that's where we're going to be in. This is a prayer basically for disordered loves. And I'll tell you the structure of it. Here's the structure. The structure is, It's not about removing your relationships. It's about replacing the relationships and putting them on the proper shelf. So what we do, the way we get rid of any idol is we repent and then we replace. We repent. It's like, man, I've been thinking about these things wrong. I've made good things, ultimate things. Repentance means I'm turning away from thinking wrongly and acting wrongly. But replacing it means, you know what? I'm going to place Jesus at the 
top shelf in my life. So here's a prayer. Try to be intentional with every word. There's like three, four, five sentences in here. So here it is. Let me explain it. And then we'll, uh, we'll have a chance to embrace it. Heavenly Father, I agree with you about my sin of making a good thing an ultimate thing. Now, it's different for different people. If you're single, it might be a relationship or the dream of a perfect family. If you're sitting here ready to say adios to your marriage, like, man, I got to go to somebody better than this. That's the reason I'm so unhappy. Whoever that is, I'm sorry that I've made something good, a gift that you've given me, and you've, I've made it above the actual giver. And here's the, here's the repentance. I turn back to you as king of my life. I mean, that's it. Now, you can't turn back to him if you've never turned to him. You can't turn back to God. It's not like, well, I, re, I recommitted my life that day. You can't recommit until you've committed. So if you're here and it's like, there's never been a time where God changed your life through repentance and faith in Jesus. It's not re-going back to him. It's coming to him for the first time. I don't care if you've been going to this church for like 50 years. It doesn't matter if your grandmama founded this church. The idea is, have you personally been changed by the grace of Jesus? That is the question. And if not, you don't recommit back. You commit for the first time. Say, I want to be a follower of Christ. I'm coming. I want you to be king of my life. But here it is. This is the, this is the awesome part. Thank you for grace in Jesus to start over, to begin again. I mean, it, that's, that's awesome. Okay, this, this can be the first, I said it last week, you can be the first link of a chain that changes all of your legacy. I'm gonna read you a deal next week that I got given the day before I married Lori that I'd forgotten completely about that my brother wrote about some of the things that he had seen in, in my life. And I'm like, I'd forgotten about that for 29 years. I'd forgotten about that whole thing but you can be the link in the chain that changes it. Thank you for grace in Jesus to begin again. And here's the one for the week. Remind me daily that I can love others best when I love you most. 